All right, good morning. Casey's been telling me about that song for a while. It is beautiful. I've never heard that before, even though she sent me the link, but I saw it was 10 minutes when I looked at it online, so I never listened to it. But man, uh, those words could not be more accurate or uh, introduce what I want to talk to you about in a clearer way than anything maybe ever I've preached to before. Like when I've come up here, no song has ever introduced exactly what I want to talk to you about this morning more than that one. And so, man, I'm amped to talk about it. So let's go ahead. I'll review a few things and then I'll get into what we have for you this morning. We are in a series called Blessed in which we're looking at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a statements of eight statements of blessing about what it looks like to be left, uh, what it looks like to be blessed. The origin of this series, and I've mentioned this a few times, comes from my small group in which we were really having a discussion. What does it look like to be blessed? And so while I didn't feel like when we had that discussion in small group eight, nine months ago that I had the answer, I did know where to go to get it. And I knew it was here in the Beatitudes where Jesus tells us what it looks like to be blessed. And what he tells us here is countercultural and it's unexpected. And if you and I were to write up a list of what it looks like to be blessed, we would not come up with this same list. Or that's at least not what I would come up with. Maybe you're closer to the heart of Jesus than me. But what Jesus says here is fascinating. Over the last four weeks, we've looked at these statements. In week one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And what we saw is that the poor in spirit are those who are aware of their insignificance before God and who display and possess the reality or the kingdom of God. We are aware of our insignificance, which maybe you didn't want to come to this church this morning to hear. We are insignificant in comparison to God. And that is not to make us little, but to make us great. And we get to possess and display everything that is God's. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are aware of their insignificance, for they will be smashed like bugs. Yeah. Blessed are those who are aware of their insignificance, who are poor in spirit, for they get to possess and display everything. Everything. For theirs is the kingdom of God. In week two, we looked at blessed are... Those who, blessed are, uh, man, I'm forgetting it for a second. Those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we saw this idea that those who mourn are those who go through unwanted change without self-pity or self-medicating. Those who go through unwanted change, and don't we all have change that happens to us that we would rather not experience? We always can't choose what happens in our lives. We can only choose what we're going to do with what happens in our life, right? I think Gandalf says something like that in Lord of the Rings. And this beatitude, Jesus is trying to tell us something that goes like this. When you go through hard times, I am there. I will comfort you. And so don't destroy yourself in the process trying to wallow in your hurt or avoid it. And we can do that in all kinds of ways. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Week three, we looked at the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we saw that the meek are those who are unfairly treated and yet still refuse to give in to God's plan. You know what the easiest thing to do is when you've been slapped across the cheek? To slap the person back across the cheek, yes? But we all know, or probably many of us know, we don't all know, probably many of us know what Jesus says about this. If someone slaps you on your cheek, what are you supposed to do? Give them the other cheek, right? Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. And what do we think about the person who gets slapped across the cheek and lets the person slap his other cheek? He is weak. Because he should stand up for himself. 
But Jesus reminds us something that maybe takes more faith than any other statement in the Beatitude. Those who are meek, who do not yield to the pressures of vengeance, but yield to God's plan, they get it all. They inherit the earth. And last week, which I think is just a beautiful beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. This is language of aching. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And what God is talking about here, what Jesus is talking about, is this righteousness is both personal, referring to our salvation in which we are given the righteousness of Christ, and it is social, where we display the kingdom of God around us, and we ache for to see what is broken with our world made right. In ourselves, primary justice, where we long to see and live a kind of life ourselves that would render the need to fix things in this world mute, unnecessary. To live that kind of life on a personal level because of what Christ has done for us and the righteousness he has given us to live the kind of life that does not cause destruction and chaos around us. But until Christ's return, there are two conflicting coexisting realities and destruction and chaos is everywhere because of sin. And the Christian is the one who is active in fixing what is wrong with the world so that it can display the reality that will one day be when Jesus comes again and the righteousness of our Father will shine like the sun in his kingdom. That's the language of Matthew 13. This morning we come to the fifth beatitude. It's found on page 786, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And this one kind of repeats itself, but it is a beautiful, beautiful beatitude. I don't know, I, I, I sometimes have hard times distinguishing them from the others, but if there was one beatitude that we need so desperately in our churches, and if there's one beatitude that if we lived out well, that would be super attractive to the world around us, maybe this is it. For Jesus says, his fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And as with all the Beatitudes, there are two straightforward questions that each of them demands that we ask. First, who is blessed? Second, how are they blessed? And so the questions this morning are, who are those who are merciful? Who are the merciful? And question number two, how will the merciful be blessed? Who are the merciful and how will the merciful be blessed? Well, let's get right at it. First, who are the merciful? Who is Jesus referring to when he refers to the merciful? And here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a definition and I'm going to explain and illustrate it from the scriptures. Here's what Jesus means, and I'm sure of it. The merciful are those who have received undeserved compassion and choose to give others undeserved compassion. The merciful are those who have re- received undeserved compassion, and we might add in parentheses, from God, who have received undeserved compassion from God and who choose, because of what God has done in their life, to give others undeserved compassion. Mercy, the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes, begins with receiving undeserved compassion from God. 
Let me show you what I mean. If you turn in your Bibles with me, we're going to turn to a few passages this morning. But the first one is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And you can find it on page 947. This is a very famous passage. If you've grown up in the church or you've been in church long, you will have seen it many times. And if you haven't, then man, what a privilege it is to show it to you for maybe the first or second time. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about concepts that are very related to what we're talking this morning. Mercy, grace, and love. And I want to show you how they connect. And I want to show you how God has first extended mercy towards us and how that compels us to do likewise to others. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins or in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it, has been grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works, so none of you can boast. I want you to notice a few things in this text. First, notice that the mercy of God is actually spoken of in this passage in verse 4 as existing in God's very nature. You see that? For God, who loved us out of his n- mercy... It is because of the nature of who God is. He is a God who is rich in mercy, that he extends his love to us. The second thing I want you to notice is the close connection that we see in this text between mercy and grace. Warren Wearsby, who was a Bible commentator that I read a lot growing up, he wrote these real simple books, uh, real short, real easy to understand, and they were called the B books. They were always like, Galatians is all about freedom, and so his book on Galatians is called Be Free. Philippians is all about joy, so his book on Philippians is about, called Be Joyful. So he wrote all these B books, but I remember him saying, uh, making a distinguishing mark between mercy and grace, and he said, mercy is all about not receiving what you do deserve, and grace is all about receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is about not receiving what you do deserve, and grace is about receiving what you don't deserve. And I think those definitions are pretty good as far as they go, although we'll see that they're a general general definition. I would like to take it a little further. Mercy is really about all about giving compassion or withholding compassion or withholding harm, giving compassion or withholding harm to those who deserve otherwise. And that's critical to mercy. Mercy is about giving compassion or withholding compassion to those who deserve otherwise. The other core component that is involved in mercy is the component that we have the ability or the power to harm them. Implied in mercy is this idea of withholding or restraint that you could pay back vengeance, but you choose not to. You know, if you've ever seen any of the superhero movies, and I won't even quote one exactly, but the superhero at the end of the movie, he always thinks he's invincible and then he's proven otherwise, right? Well, if he really was invincible and the superhero could not defeat him, it wouldn't be mercy if if he treated him well at the end. Does this make sense? 
You must be able to harm somebody and you must be able to withhold it to show mercy. Otherwise, you're just kind of like a peon that's being stomped on. You see? But God, who is rich in mercy, and he is rich in mercy because he is so powerful. And even though he is so powerful, he restrains that power. Now, why does he do it? If this was a class, I'd ask you to tell me out loud, but because it's a preaching sermon, you know, I'm just going to tell you the answers. It's nicer that way. Why does he do it? Two factors. Because of his great love, which exhibits itself, and you see this in the text, in verse 7, in his kindness to us. His great love exhibited in his kindness to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Mercy is all about giving compassion or withholding harm when it is in your power to do otherwise and when the person that you're withholding or giving compassion really deserves otherwise. And man, every story that we ever read is almost, you know, you have the protagonist and the antagonist and the antagonist antagonizes the protagonist And in the story or the movie or the book, you ache for the protagonist to put him in his place. You see? Sometimes when we have movies where the protagonist doesn't do this, we feel that tension like something hasn't been resolved because the antagonist should be squashed and he should know it. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, who has the power, restrains and withholds it. And why? Because of his love. But mercy is this withholding or this giving, when we do not deserve it. What is grace? It's all about receiving something that you do not deserve. It's about receiving something you do not deserve. And in Ephesians 2, we see that every aspect of mercy and grace that we show to others in our lives starts with having received mercy and grace ourselves from God through Jesus. Salvation We see in this text, and it's so important that we get reminded of this. It's important that we get reminded of it for the thousandth, ten thousandth time. And it's so important if you're new to church that you hear it for the first or second or third time. Salvation is not about deserving it because you're not that bad. Salvation is about grace, about undeserved grace, compelled by a God who is by his very nature merciful who loves us even still, and who that loveness gets exhibited in the kindness through Jesus Christ. For salvation, verse 8, is by grace, through faith, and it is not anything that you possess in yourself. It is a gift, a gift of God. And because of that, there is no reason ever that you should boast. This means in the church world, and since predominantly that's who I'm speaking to, I will speak to you. This means in the church world that when you see yourself compared to your neighbor, your friend, a family member, a coworker who doesn't know Jesus, your first reaction should not be, look at me, I am better. Your first reaction should be, oh, for the grace of God that has worked in my life And I long to see that person experience it as well. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is nothing that you do. So there's no reason to boast. 
You are worse than you could imagine. And you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Mercy. We notice that the merciful are those who give this undeserved compassion. But we see another thing in this definition. The merciful are those who have received undeserved compassion and who choose. So there is, this is a word of volition. Who choose to give others undeserved compassion. This beatitude is not just talking about receiving mercy. Obviously, it's actually not even talking about that predominantly, is it? The first section of it is not about receiving mercy. It's actually about extending mercy, isn't it? Blessed are the merciful. So what does it look like to extend mercy? It starts with having received mercy from God at the point of salvation. And if we understand anything about salvation, we see ourselves truly for who we are having nothing, done nothing to deserve it. But once we've received salvation, we choose to give it freely to others. And this requires a choice. And it is not a choice of feeling. It is a choice of doing or action. It is a choice of action. For mercy is not a feeling of self-pity when you see another person in need. It is not a feeling. It is an action. To show you this, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It's one of the more famous passages in parables of Jesus. It's found on page 843, and you can see this nowhere more clearly than you do in the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and the story I'm referring to is the story of the Good Samaritan. Besides, instead of prefacing what the story of the Good Samaritan says, I'm just going to read it to you. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) What is written in the law, he replied. Now, how do you read it? This is Jesus asking the expert in the law a question. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and live. But he wanted to justify himself further. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, before I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, I want to point out something to you. Lots of us agree on this. You know, love is a good thing. Love God, love others, right? This man agrees too. But a lot of us often have glasses on that harm us or stop us from seeing what does it really look to love another person? This man agrees with him on what it means to love, that we should love. We all like love in the abstract, but love in the concrete is far harder, you see? So Jesus says, here's what it means to love. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, and they left him half dead. Now, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, who was also a religious leader. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, Jesus says, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. And the expert in the law said, 
the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. For mercy is not a feeling. I always envision the priest and the Levite. I'm sure they felt bad for the man. But it was not mercy to feel pity for him. Maybe they didn't. It's a story. We don't really know what they thought. But I imagine likely they did. And then the Samaritan comes by. And if you know anything about Bible background, Samaritans are the scum of the earth when it came to Israel, the Israelites. That was the Israelites' opinion. They are not scum of the earth. But the Israelites believe that. The reason they believe that, and this is just interesting stuff for me, the reason they believe that is because the Samaritans were a half-breed. We talk a lot about Bible background history. And remember when I've talked about in the past the uh, Assyrian invasion on the northern kingdom of Israel that happened in 722 BC? Well, when the Assyrians took over a nation, they bred out a nation. In other words, they forced, they often killed the men or they enslaved them. And then they forced the Israelite women and all the other surrounding nations, they did the same thing to them. They forced the foreign women, in this case the Israelites, to marry or to have sex with the men of the Assyrians. And in that way, they became half-breeds. And they bred out of the northern kingdom of Israel any national identity. To the point then that the Judeans, Uh, The Judeans, the southern kingdom, saw the Samaritans as a lesser breed to the point where they wouldn't even travel in their country. They would go out of their way by a large distance just so that they didn't have to travel through their land. And a Samaritan came by. Now, who was the neighbor? You'd expect the priest. You'd expect the Levite. I think they probably had good feelings of pity. They probably thought, I am busy and I feel bad for that man. But the one who showed mercy was the one who did something. Because mercy is not a feeling. It is an action. An action of undeserved compassion. We say undeserved here in the Good Samaritan, not because we know anything about the background of the Samaritan, but because, really, there was no reason to stop. The Samaritan was busy. We know he was busy from the story because when he dropped the man off, he had to go. And do his business, you know? He had to go away and do some things, and then he came back to take care of what he needed. This Samaritan had no responsibility or obligation or duty to this beat-up, broken man on the side of the road. He had no relationship. The man had done nothing to deserve it, albeit he has done nothing to not deserve it, but it doesn't matter. He has no obligation, and that presence of no obligation did not matter to the Samaritan for. The expert in the law says this was a man who showed that that man mercy. And Jesus says, you're right. Now go and do likewise. Because the merciful are those who have received undeserved compassion and who choose to give others undeserved compassion. That's question number one. Who are the merciful? Question number two. How will the merciful be blessed? How will the merciful be blessed? And the language of the text could not be more simple or uh, more unhelpful in some ways we might think. Blessed are the merciful for they should be or will be shown mercy. For they will be shown mercy. So be merciful and you will receive mercy. That's what the plain reading of the text seems to say. But I think there is something more going on. 
And the something more going on is uh, a language or a word that goes along with mercy that is so closely connected, they're almost synonymous. What Jesus is saying is that the merciful will be forgiven. That's how they're blessed. Those who are merciful will be forgiven. And I'm having you turn around a little bit uh, in the text this morning, but I'm going to ask you to turn to another beautiful story, a parable by Jesus. It's found in Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 35, and it'll connect the dots for you really simply and easily on how Jesus connects mercy to forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 35. And here's what Jesus says. This time, it is not an expert of the law who comes to Jesus, but it is maybe his primary disciple. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Peter says, up to seven times. (laughs) Apparently, that was the thinking in his day. I've done a little background research of this before. This was the common thing. You should be a forgiving person, but seven times is more than enough times for a person who has sinned against you to have an opportunity to repent. There's something interesting. You can write it down and look at it later. In Luke chapter 17, the same kind of language is used, verses 3 and 4, I believe, where uh, Jesus says, maybe in this, a similar context, because it's a paral- it may be a parallel gospel account, where someone comes to him and asks, how many times should I forgive? Seven times. And he says, Uh, I tell you, if somebody comes to you who has sinned against you and repents, you should forgive them up to seven times in the same day if they have done the same sin. Now I ask you, if I did something against my wife that she didn't like and she told me, I don't like it, please stop it. Let's say I blew in her ear. I don't know why I would do that. But let's say I blew in my ear and I'm just being flirtatious and fun. And I blow in her ear and she goes, I really don't like that. Please stop. And I'm sorry. I, I, I'll respect you more. And then I do it again. And she says, I really don't like that. Please stop. And then I do it again. And she's like, no. And she punches me. I really don't like it. Stop it. I repent. I'm sorry. One could wonder how repentant I really am if I do it seven times. Yes? For next service, I'll come up with something better than blowing in the air. But you get my point. The nature of this conversation is completely in the context of forgiveness. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, sometimes seven times seven. Jesus is not saying, here's a greater number, keep track, and then you're good from then on out. He is saying, infinite amount of times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king, and here's the parable. The king wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay his debt. At this, servant, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will, and I will pay everything back. The servant Master took pity on him, but notice the pity is not just a feeling. And he canceled the debt and he let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. 
Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants of the king saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master then called the servant. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the hearts. Now, It would be easy to read this passage and think that we are only forgiven by God as we forgive others and to the extent we forgive others, which would make it seem like salvation is based on our forgiveness of other people. This is not true. We know this from biblical theology, from passage like like we just read a couple seconds ago from Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 9. We know this to not be true. So what is Jesus saying? He is saying, he is not saying that we earn mercy through mercy or that we earn forgiveness through forgiveness. He is saying rather that the extension of mercy or forgiveness is a sign that you have received the mercy and the forgiveness of God and that you have been transformed by it. The servant in this story was not transformed by the forgiveness of the king. If he had been, he would have forgiven the servant. The story is meant to be comical, although we wouldn't see it in our world. 10,000 bags of gold versus 100 silver coins. In that language, the mounts would have been so disproportionate as to be laughable. And yet the man who had been forgiven a ridiculous amount, an amount that he would never, ever, ever be able to pay in his lifetime. He says, I'll pay it all back. His earning power... This is generational wealth. It is not the kind of wealth that he could ever hope to make if he never, ever ate food again or had any kids that he had to buy diapers for, ever. If he he could work without eating and without sleeping and without renting anything to live in, he still could not pay back this debt. And yet the king forgives him. But... The man who owes him 100 silver coins, which isn't nothing. It's about 100 days of work. He chokes him and throws him into prison. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And whatever that means, I'm pretty sure it's not good. And I am sure it means this. Those who do not extend forgiveness have not really received the forgiveness of Christ. For if they had, they would not behave this way. In other words, in theological language, forgiving others is a sign that you have repented of your sins, that you have understood and seen the reality of your sin and how it destroys and hurts others and yourself. To repent means you have seen all of that and you have turned the other way for that is all the language of repentance means. Repentance, if you want a simple way of remembering it for the future, just means a 180. It means you're going this way and then you go this way. A complete 180. 
the man who experienced the forgiveness of the king had not repented and therefore had not received the forgiveness of the king in his heart. And so many want the blessings of God, hoping that that will be the transformation of God, but it is not. Did you know God extends forgiveness to all of us? But so many of us do not receive it. I've kind of got Lord of the Rings on my mind lately because we've been, I'm in a book club with some of you here at church and we've been reading Lord of the Rings and we just finished the three books and that's probably my sixth time reading them and every time I'm surprised how much I've forgotten. But there's this little scene in the Lord of the Rings uh, and probably many of you have watched the movie, but in the book, there's this little scene that happens at the very end of Return of the King after the ring has gone into Mount Doom and pretty much everything's been set. But in the movie, Saruman dies early, you know, when Treebeard takes over and he dies at the beginning of the movie. But that's not the way the book works. In the book, the hobbits are traveling back with an entourage with Gandalf and a bunch of others and people get dropped off along the way. And finally, it's just, if I remember right, the hobbits and Gandalf and they're on their way back to the Shire and they run into Saruman and his buddy Wormtongue, you know, Grima Wormtongue. And they come before Saruman and they say, even now, would you not turn and be shown mercy? I wish that we would have run into you before when Aragon was was here. And he said, for he would have shown you both wisdom and mercy. And Saruman says, I'm glad I didn't, for I want neither. I don't want either of them. God extends forgiveness and mercy to all. And some with the cold heartedness in their pride, refuse to receive it. And in the darkness of their hearts, they bring a bitterness and anger to the reality around them. Let me ask you, do you believe that person is blessed? If you could change sides with that person, would you want to? He brings damage and destruction, or she can be both to the existence all around them. And I remind myself, my boys of this, and I remind myself of this when I am treated with no mercy and no grace. That those who lack mercy and lack grace hurt others, and sometimes they hurt me, but in the end of the day, they live with themselves and they cannot escape themselves. And at the end of the Lord of the Rings, there couldn't be a greater and more clearly seen theme than mercy will continue to be offered even when it is not deserved. And yet so many refuse to receive it. Like this wicked servant in Matthew chapter 18. The kind of repentance that leads to salvation is a recognition of your sin an awareness of the grace of God in a movement in a 180 degree in the other direction. Do you see yourself this way? Do you see yourself as undeserving but receiving anyway? Or do you see yourself as someone who it kind of makes sense that God loves because you're a little more lovable than the rest? How much do you think the love of God had to overcome to save you and to forgive you? For there is a direct correlation between how much you think 
God must overcome to save you and how much you love God and love others. There is a direct correlation between how you see yourself and how you extend the mercy and love of God to others. This is why Martin Luther, the great reformer, not Martin Luther King Jr., who was also awesome, but Martin Luther, the great reformer in 1500s during the Reformation says, let your sin be great and your Savior be greater because there is a direct correlation. I'm going to take you to one last passage and you'll see what I mean. It's a lot of Bible this morning, but they are beautiful passages. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And with this, I'll be done. Luke 7, 36 through 50. (laughs) The context is a home of a Pharisee, a religious leader who thought he was deserving. And so he invites Jesus over for dinner and his party gets crashed. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. Now a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed him and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this, is a man, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinner. Implication, I'm not, or at least I'm not as much. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell me. Tell me, teacher, he said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed them 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back, so he forgave the debts of both. Who do you think loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you didn't give me water for my feet, but she has wet it with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not kiss me, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured it on my feet. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. You see? As her great love has shown, because love for others, is a marker that your sins have been forgiven. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to them, go in peace for your sin. Said to her, go in peace for your sins are forgiven. How do you see yourself? If you see yourself correctly, you will feel gratitude for the undeserved grace of God. For you will understand what it required for God to love and forgive you, to forgive me. We talk about the grace and mercy of God a lot in church. But you know, We don't extend grace and mercy just as a church corporately. We extend grace and mercy individually. And every relationship that we have, when we go home, 
with our neighbors, with our family members, with our coworkers, with our neighbors? Have you been touched by the grace of God so that you see yourself correctly? If you have, you will extend mercy. You will forgive others. You will look on them with the compassion that moves to action because Jesus has done so much for you. And if you don't, allow that to make you consider some things. In this tradition, we focus a lot on what's a doctrine called eternal security. And I believe it. If you've truly been saved, you cannot lose your salvation. But if you do not love others well, do not go to verses like Romans 8 and John 10 and quote them to yourself and feel good. Allow the lack of love and mercy that you show to others to cause you to question if you have really ever experienced the love and the beauty of Jesus. For if you had, you would not be cold-hearted and unkind. You would long to extend mercy to those who do not deserve it. Is it hard? You bet. Does it matter? (laughs) Sounds like it matters a whole lot to me. For if you do not forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. It's not saying what it sounds like, but it's saying something that's a pretty big deal. If you receive grace, you will extend grace and mercy, and you will be blessed. That was heavy, wasn't it? Let me pray for you. Father, work in our hearts by the power of your spirit to transform us, to see ourselves like you see us without anything to offer you and yet more love than we could ever dare hope and then transform our hearts to see others the way you see them as your children who you love. It's in your name we pray, amen.